Dan Pierce, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is Klonoa 2. I first sort of got into playing games by playing basically just Pokemon on my Game Boy Color. Um, my parents wouldn't let me have like a, you know, in quotations, a real games console. Uh, I really wanted a PlayStation 1. Uh, they wouldn't let me have it because they thought I would uh, get obsessed with it and it would like take over my life. Um, but what, which, what was the reason why you were on the PlayStation 1 in the first place? Just because all my friends had one. It just seemed cool. I wanted to play Spyro. Ah, um, who didn't? Exactly. Well, it's just like Spyro had such lovely aesthetics mm. and like everything. Like we, I mean, we had a PC, but like the only the games we had in that were like Total Annihilation and kind of more grown up stuff. And playing Spyro, just like when you pick up the gems, it sounds so lovely and everything about kind of. I'm not sure what it is. I think it was sort of the the aesthetic limitations of the PS1 led to some really interesting artwork, and that really really appealed to me. And I was wanted to sort of explore the worlds in PS1s much more than I did on PC, which always felt a bit kind of finicky and, and odd. Um, but yeah, so my, my parents didn't want me to have a PlayStation, but I kept asking them uh, over and over and over again. And then, uh, you know, one Christmas, I open up a box, and it's not a PlayStation 1, it's a PlayStation 2. Right when it was, like, brand new. Um which blew my mind. My brother cried. Uh, it was very, it was a very emotional experience. Hey, I I cried when I got my PS2. So hey, we're there. I didn't. I was like, what a loser! Imagine crying over video games. What? And then, well, no, because we're gonna find out later that just how much of a hypocrite I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so basically, you know, we we set it up. We started playing it. My my brother's a bit older than me, so he got to play it first, and then I got to play it afterwards. And his goal lasted for like an hour, and then I sat down and started playing it, and I just didn't stop for the whole day. Like I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to sit and play video games. Um, like like what what were those kind of first PS2 experiences? Like what were those first games? So they were there was Gran Turismo three, which oh. was I think more for my mum because she quite likes driving games. And I I never really saw the appeal in it because it was very grown up and realistic and stuff. Oh. And then the the two games which I really got into were um, Crash Bandicoot: The Wrath of Cortex, um, which I think left a, a bigger imprint on me than I realised at the time. And uh, the other one which I, I think I sort of I probably spent the most time with was uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, just because it was like. For a for a movie tie-in, it was pretty nice. Uh, it looked very good for the time. It was it's a gorgeous-looking game, really good art style. Um, and you could free roam around Hogwarts pretty much on a broomstick, and that was like a really liberating experience for me. So those were sort of like my three main starter games. I didn't really get into any like really good games for quite a while. Um, I'm not. I'm not really sure why that was. I I, I kept having like the string of average games, but I still found them really interesting. Mm. Um, 
But importantly, uh, the PS2 came with, or at least when I got the PS2, it came with um, like a demo disc. That's right. With all this stuff. And it had like, you know, like a trailer of Devil May Cry, which was like the coolest thing ever because like Dante gets stabbed with the sword and like a woman throws a motorbike at him and he holds it in midair with pistol fire. Like it's ridiculous and it just looks so cool. Um, and there was, you know, just all this stuff on there. Some bit more interesting than other, some bits more interesting than others, and, and some bit left more of an impression than others. But there was a demo on there for uh, Klonoa Two, oh. which was like, like that, because I had sort of skipped that PS One generation. This was like my first like platformer. Um, Klonoa, if you know, people aren't aware, it's sort of. I don't know why, but I always sort of cringe at this term, but I'm going to use it. It's a 2.5D platformer where you move your character, Klonoa, left and right, but the levels are 3D and they kind of wind around in these paths and stuff. Let, let, let's skip that for later on. We'll, okay. we'll come to Klonoa uh, in a while, but like going, going slightly back, I can, I can easily remember the demo that's coming with the PS2 because, like, well, maybe maybe yours was different because, like, the, the kind of stuff you're experiencing, uh, the kind of talk you're, the stuff you're talking about, even was 2001ish. So my my, well, my I got mine in early 2001, but it was two months after launch. So my my demo disc was more Metal Gear Solid 2 SSX. Oh well, it had the intro for the demo had like this kind of orchestra score, and it had footage of all the games coming up for PS2. I don't know if Devil May Cry was announced at that time, but like it had. Metal Gear Solid 2, SSX, all the launch games, I think maybe Final Fantasy X, and I definitely recall there, I definitely recall Zone of the End, there's one being in there as well. Okay, that's interesting. Because I... So the ones that I remember were Soul Reaver 2, Legacy of Cain, mm-hmm. Devil May Cry, um, Jack and Daxter had a, a trailer on there. Mm. Obviously, Klonoa 2 was on there. I'm not sure what else. I know you could code with it, which was bizarre. I never really got into it, but like they had like this very basic coding language that you can mess around with, and I, I messed with their snake code to make the snake really, really fast. And then was like, this is too complicated for me. I'm never going to code ever. Um, <laughs> again, very much just... I, I have no conviction with that stuff. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm not sure sort of where that would date it. I was about seven... I think it was seven or eight years old when this happened so that would have been 13 years ago so yeah it would have been like around that 2002 sort of Christmas um like further down the line then like what kind of shaped you into being the game's person that you are now so there are a few things uh I'd say everything sort of started happening at once when I was around 10 years old when I was 10 that was when I started encountering like the greats just sort of completely by accident up until that point my favorite game had been i think james bond nightfire um which is an amazing game it is a good shooter Does, yeah it doesn't get enough love everyone it goes doesn't. on about goldeneye but it's it's really good um but yeah so it, it mainly been that and and jack 2 renegade which i i adore jack 2 renegade um i'd say that was my first the first game that i properly fell in love with but i, I would say all of that sort of started happening when i was around 10. I was playing Jack 2. Um, that's when I started like trying to just design my own games at school. I, I lied to my friends and said that I'd won a competition with EA and they were going to make a video game that I was designing. 
and during our break times for about three months, we would just sit there and like basically write design documents uh, for this like imaginary fictional game that EA was going to make for us. Um, and hilariously, about six years later, that thing that I made up about winning a competition with EA and then making my game almost exactly happened. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> which I then had to I, I met up with my friends who I'd, I'd lied to at the time and they're like oh, so what are you up to and I was like well <laughs> um, you know that thing I lied about sort of that um, but yeah and basically yeah so I'd say that the start of it was when I was around 10 playing Jack 2 Renegade trying to rip that off um, getting sort of seeing murmurs about the Nintendo DS and really falling for that hard is just seeming really, really interesting. And I I was obsessed with the DS. I couldn't stop looking at, like, videos of it. I'd get magazines to read up on it. Um, some of that was sort of came from spite. There was a kid at school who I was really jealous of who had a PSP that his dad brought him from Japan, like, six months before it came out. And because he had a PSP and I didn't, I decided that the PSP was awful and that the <laughs> DS was the best. <laughs> fanboy exactly so oh you have no idea um so i i became very into the uh ds started reading uh official nintendo magazine went on their forums um just ab- absorbed anything to do with nintendo from that point on um and i was i was pretty much a nintendo fanboy probably like four years i'd say from about the age of like 10 to, to 14 i was I, I i wouldn't have anything else which sort of meant that I was I was right there when the Wii was launching, and I was I was really excited about that, and that was I I think that really helped me as a designer just the all the the buzz and the lead up to the Wii, um just really inspired me. It really brought out the designer in me and made me think critically about like okay how would I use this new hardware that no one's really had a chance to play with yet, um and it kind of forced me into a position where I had to think about design in a in a completely independent way without using that many um comfortable reference points um so yeah like to to answer your earlier question that was when i sort of i i'd say became a designer was sort of the age of 10 to 14 when i really got into nintendo stuff and, and really started discovering the great games like Metal Gear solid 2 and jack 2 and and like mario 64 the ds version yeah, and this just said things like, how did you jump on board, basically? So I'd been um, trying to design games here and there for quite a while. I would sit in class, I'd get all my work done as quick as I can, or, or as quick as I could, and then I had this really big folder just filled with sheets of A4 paper where I would draw like characters and ideas for set pieces in games and all this stuff, and like control maps, like just loads of stuff. I've still got them. It's 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 literally like. If you were to stack all the the like folders full of stuff that I made, it would be about like a foot and a half worth of stuff that I just drawn in class. Um, I I used RPG Maker a lot and sort of played around with with stuff there. Um, but it was I'd say that the big turning point was uh, winning BAFTA's Young Game Designers Award when I was sixteen, uh, which was uh, something that I'd found about from going to Eurogamer in twenty ten. Um, I'd been. I, I I need sort of like set this up a little bit. At the time, I was very very excited for the game uh, Brink from uh, Splash Damage, mm. and I'd been watching like every trailer I could for it. It looked really really cool. Um, and as a result, I, I I just sort of like 
knew the faces of the team who were working on it. Like, I, I just sort of, like, they were familiar to me. So when I went to Eurogamer and I saw the Splash Damage team sort of walking around, um, I knew who they were. I knew how to talk to them. I knew the sort of conversations I should be having with them. Um, so I sort of, you know, chatted to them a bit at the brink stand. But importantly, in the career section, uh, the the writer slash designer at Splash Damage, uh, Ed Stern, a lovely, lovely man. And someone who's been on the show before. Yes. Um, he, I'm not sure if he even remembers this. Um, he he was doing some stuff. He was representing Battle Young Game Zones to try and convince teenagers like myself, uh, sort of 11 to 16 year olds, why they should enter this competition with BAFTA and submit a, a game pitch. And because I recognized him, um, I saw him, I was with a friend of mine, and I was like, should I go over and talk to him? I really don't want to just because it feels like it would be awkward, but like, should I do it? Um, and my friend was like, well, you'll probably regret it more if you don't go and talk to him. Um, and he was very right, because talking to Ed Stern uh, was... A, a huge deal for me. We chatted for like half an hour just about video games and and all that stuff. Um, and it really motivated me to enter BAFTA Young Game Designers competition. Uh, I submitted a a game pitch for like a little platformer called. It was like a puzzle platformer called Hamster Accidental World Domination. It was sort of um, artistically it looked a bit like uh, the DS game Henry Hatsworth, which is an amazing game. If you haven't played it, you should. It's fantastic. Um, and it. It won. It was. I sent in like a few sheets, basically saying like, "Here's how the mechanics work. Here's how the story would work." It was sort of like a satire of standard platformer story tropes. And after liked it, and I won. I got to wear a suit. I went to a big fancy event. I met uh, Hit Girl from Kickass. It was a weird time. Um, and from that, I suddenly had so many business cards and so many contacts, and so many doors were suddenly open for me. Um, and I could basically speak to anyone in the industry I want and be like, hi, can I have a few minutes of your time? I won BAFTA's Young Game Designers Award. And then they would give me that time. Um, so I'd say that's when my career really, really started, was sort of getting the guts to talk to Ed Stern at Eurogamer, and then that leading me to, to win BAFTA Young Game Designers competition. Let's get into your favourite game, Clonoa uh, 2, Lunatea's Veil, as the subtitle was. Um, so, uh, like, you'd obviously gotten in with the PS2, you hadn't played uh, anything on the PS1, so, like, had, had you played the first game beforehand, or, or on, because PS2 was a backwards console, or BC console, or or did you play it later down the line after 2 came out? Um, I played it later down the line, it, weirdly, <laughs> I guess... I don't know why this is, but I didn't play uh, the original Klonoa, which is Klonoa, Daughter, Phantom Isle. Um, I didn't play that until, I guess, about two years ago. Um, simply because it hadn't occurred to me that it existed. <laughs> Weirdly. like It was always just like Klonoa 2 was the game of my childhood, and I, I sort of pictured it as a standalone thing, even though it had a 2 at the end of it. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So then I was like, wait, hang on a minute. It's a Klonoa 2. There's got to be a Klonoa 1. <laughs> and it turns out there's actually way more than that. There's a bunch on the Game Boy Advance as well, which are fantastic. Um, 
but yeah, Klonoa Two is my it's my Klonoa. Ah, like like what did you think of Klonoa One? Um, I think it's really really good. I like the the art style hasn't aged particularly well. They the gameplay is very very similar in that it's sort of two point five D three D environments, but like two D gameplay. But they have some kind of messy looking sprites in the PS One version. Just like visually, it's it's not aged particularly gracefully. And also in terms of the story, I feel like the melodrama in Klonoa 2 doesn't land quite as well as it does in Klonoa 2. Um, like, yeah, in Daughter Phantom Hour, it, it feels a bit just like it comes out of nowhere. Sometimes it works really, really well, but in yeah, in Klonoa 2, I felt like it was a bit more consistent. Um, though I I did cry playing Klonoa 1, so I don't know why I'm... It's, it's kind of a dull criticism. <laughs> Like, like, what what led you in the game to have that moment, to have that little emotional moment? Um, I guess it was just that, like, the so the game, Klonoa games have a, a tendency to be very, very bright and very, very happy. You're literally playing through dreams. Um, and it's, you know, it's all blue skies and bright green grass and fluffy clouds and, and all that stuff. And even the bosses are fun, the enemies are fun. Um, but it's, despite that, Klonoa as a series doesn't ever pull punches and when it go when it finds a point where like a character needs to go away or a character needs to die or something bad needs to happen it fully commits to that um and it can be really really distressing because Klonoa the the protagonist of the game is kind of this strange boy cat creature with giant ears that he can use as wings it's really odd but um as a result, when something bad happens, like, and Klonoa's really beat up about it, like, he cries. And it's really, really sad. It's really distressing. It sounds like a, a child or an animal whining or something. Like, it's really, like, <laughs> genuinely distressing. Um, so, yeah, Klonoa, Klonoa 1 has a few moments like that, and I guess one of the reasons why I like that stuff is because it always feels earned. It's not just melodrama. For, it doesn't feel like melodrama for the sake of it. Um, it feels like very earnest when it it has those kind of like sad bits or those like kind of sappy bits it 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 feels like the game got there in a way that felt justified um and i really like that about the series in general yeah uh, i stopped you off earlier but yeah give the elevator pitch on what was clonoa 2 so clonoa 2 it is firstly it's really good um you gathered as much otherwise you wouldn't be here talking about it right but I feel like it should just be stressed. Um, <laughs> it's a 2.5D platformery thing. I guess a puzzle platformer. Um, it's not like a, a Twitch platformer. It's, it's very much just like... it's It's got a reasonably steady pace to it. Um, where you would play as Klonoa, who is a cat creature thing with giant ears. When you jump, uh, you can do like a little uh, like Yoshi-style like mid-air wobble. Um, by flapping Klonoa's ears. Um, and the key mechanic of Klonoa basically revolves around this ring that Klonoa has, hmm. which you can kind of... I'm not sure what verb to use. You can kind of fire it a very short distance, and if you fire it at an enemy, the enemy then becomes attached to your ring. So you can then throw the enemy, or you can jump and then jump again while you're holding the enemy and throw the enemy downwards and use it like a double jump. But different mechani- different enemies have different attributes, which leads to different mechanics, which de- leads to puzzles with different solutions. Um, 
and, and that's sort of where the puzzle elements come from is this whole like grabbing enemies and throwing them in different directions mechanic um, I it's in terms of gameplay, it's a pretty basic puzzle platformer. I think the gameplay is very good. The level design in the Klonoa games is very very strong throughout. Um, but I would say that the the real appeal of Klonoa and the the reason it resonates so much with me is because tonally and like artistically and and just in terms of like the audio, like everything about the presentation um, feels like the best dream you've ever had um like it's so upbeat and joyous and when it isn't it's deliberate and it still feels nuanced and interesting um and for a game that's so basic where you play as a weird cat thing it's astonishing to me that the tone is always so interesting and like just nuanced and then it creates a world that you always want to be a part of um and it, it really elevates the game above most platformers, just just because it is so well presented and it feels just so nice to be in that space. When, when playing it at the time, like when when did you first play Clonoa Two? By the way, so I think I would have been seven or eight, uh, but I didn't own the game until I was about ten or eleven, I think. Ah, okay. Like, like for 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 that time, like, how did you find that kind of tone? Like, looking back on it. Um. So at the time, I just remember it being really, really happy. And I mean, like, as I said, I kind of missed out on that PS One era of like super bright, happy, colorful platformers. Um, and I feel like if I'd been aware of the lineage of platforms that came before Klonoa, it might not have hit me quite as hard. Just like how unbelievably upbeat and joyous the game was but um for me as my first platformer it felt it felt perfect and i I still think looking at it it feels like the culmination of every kind of where platforms had been up until that point reaching their perfect like tonal conclusion um where everything's really cohesive and it there's not that one weird area that one weird level that feels thematically wrong with the rest of the game it all fits together but still is varied and interesting and bright and colourful and just um, yeah just like vivid and happy I guess mm, like, like talk talk of that varied level design and like like that, yeah just talk about the, the various level design in that game because like I say it, it does seem you know different uh, each, each level you play so the level design's interesting in that the game's kind of it does a lot of things at once it plays with the fact that you're in terms of how you're controlling Klonoa you are on a 2D plane but it has because the levels are still in 3D you're just on this sort of like winding pathway through it you can then use the perspective in interesting ways so if you're if Klonoa is on a a strip of level closer to the camera but then there's something way in the background you can throw enemies at that thing in the background and it will work and they use it as a puzzle mechanic very frequently um so even though it controls 2D, it's fundamentally a very 3D-focused game, and I would say it actually uses depth in 3D a lot more interesting than a lot more interestingly than most 3D games do. Um, for example, if you have a boss fight, it's not just going to be a boss fight where you run on a 2D. Well, there's only one boss fight where it feels like it could have only it that feels like it could have worked in 2D. Most of the boss fights, you're on a ring around the boss, and you kind of run around the boss, and the camera circles around the boss with you. 
and you basically have to use this 2D plane to find different angles on the boss and then pick up enemies and throw them at the boss. And it just uses perspective in a really interesting way like that. And it, it most of the puzzles involve that in some way. Uh, if they don't use that perspective, they use the the enemy's attributes. For example, there's an enemy where... some some The default enemy, if you pick them up with the ring and then you throw them, uh, they will fly through the air and they will hit a wall or something or another enemy. And then the enemy will sort of like poof and explode, but not damage anything around it. It will just disappear. Hmm. But as you get further on into the game, there are these similar-looking enemies who explode on a timer. And they don't pop when they collide with things. They only, like die and explode once they've got to the end of this timer which means that suddenly you can like throw them around into different positions and like trigger bombs to open up doorways and then when you bring that in with the perspective mechanic maybe there's a door in the distance that you can see from where you're at that you have to throw this bomb enemy at then you have to find a way over to that place in the distance on this 2d plane (laughs) like it's it's kind of difficult to to describe but it's one of those things where in the game it absolutely makes sense just spatially how these things work um, and then once you get further on into the game those different enemy types suddenly combine in way more interesting ways and suddenly you have to go like okay I need to grab this enemy here and then move him over here and then throw it down at this enemy and then do a double jump up here and that will allow me to go here and you kind of it's it's very methodical you kind of you really have to to look at a problem and take a step back from it and look at it as a whole and then work back from the solution. Like it's it's a proper thinking type of solution for a platform game, anyways. Yeah, and it's it's it varies from just being like kind of being very light puzzles just to make navigation a bit more interesting to being really quite challenging puzzle rooms. Um. And it's it flows very naturally between them, and it's it's paced very well to mean that you're constantly moving forward, and no puzzle really stumps you for more than like two or three minutes. But it still feels very satisfying when you get through it. Mm. Um, like f- for its time, for the for its release, like I mean, um, like oh yeah, certainly for its period, um, like. What was the standard Clonoa was up against, like at that time, Clonoa too? I mean, because like obviously, there was there was. I'm I'm obviously talking about a full three D platformer here compared to you know kind of two point five D stuff that Clonoa was talking about. But the stuff I'm I'm thinking about here in this regard was Jack and Daxter, Ratchet and Clank, and and like maybe maybe those aren't perhaps fair comparisons because like I said, those are two relatively three D titles, and. There's, there was also Rayman at the time, again, another 3D platform, so again, not most likely the right comparisons, but like, the standard of, what was this, the standard of platformer games at that time, like, up against that, or the standard platformer games that Klonoa 2 was up against at that time? Um, honestly, I think the examples that you, you've said are pretty on point. I mean, like, Klonoa 2 was a, I guess for the time, it, it just felt more like it did want to let go of its 2D origins, whereas for me as someone who'd only ever grown up with 3D games, Clannoa 2 felt like a throwback. Um, which is interesting, just it's interesting to me that like for people who grew up with 2D games it would have just seemed maybe a little bit dated, but for me it just seemed like it was it was exploring the heritage of 2D games, which I hadn't really got to experience very well up until that point. Um, but no, like I mean I 
when I was playing Clonoa two through like all the way through when I when I finally owned it, I was playing Jack two around the same time. Um and even then, even when I was quite young, like I could I still sort of noticed the correlation was like, okay, these are both platformers, but they're fundamentally doing very, very different things. Um and honestly I, I think it's kind of I would say that Jack and Daxter and Ratchet and Clank and stuff those were the stands that sort of Clonoa 2 would have been up against in terms of just like the platformer genre. But I also think that especially during the PS2 era people had kind of perfected the 3D platformer controls but they hadn't but people hadn't really nailed down the structure of 3D platformers for that generation yet. So I feel like the platformer genre on the PS2 was diverse enough anyway that it it didn't really make me ever feel like oh Clonoa was better or worse than X. Um, and I, I, this might just be biased, but like I, I feel like most people probably wouldn't have. I, I feel like most people probably would have done the same and would have just been like, "Well, it's just different." Um, and I have since looked up like review scores of Klonoa to when it came out, and it was generally received very, very well. Mm, but the sales weren't exactly the best. No, which is a shame because I want them to release it in HD. <laughs> <laughs> well, or def- let me make a third one. <laughs> Like, do you ever foresee Namco giving you the license for it? The, the, the well, license? I keep asking, but I don't think they're going to bite. Um, <laughs> which is a shame, because I would make it for nothing. <laughs> I I just want that to be another Klonoa game. I actually have... Uh, this is embarrassing. I sort of... I have, like, a pitch document. Like, a very rough pitch document for what my Klonoa 3 would be, just on the off chance that at some point someone... From Bandai Namco, is it Namco Bandai? It's, it's, it's Bandai Namco, no. Okay, because it was—I swear it was the other way around for a bit. Oh, it was like it, like yeah. they, they keep changing their names so often that like you can't really keep up anymore. Point is, I'm hoping that if I keep going on about Klonoa two enough, someone from Bandai Namco will eventually be like, "Do you want to make this?" And I could be like, "Yes, finally," because <laughs> I feel like at least based off ten. And obviously, we'll go into this a bit later. But like based off Tenseco Ninja and Castles in the Sky, like I sort of accidentally taught myself how to make a game that's sort of tonally and and like kinesthetically similar to Klonoa. And I feel like I could probably do an okay job of it. And I would really, ah, oh, I'd love to make a Klonoa game. Um, but anyway, I probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> every every Klonoa fan heartbroken at that revelation. Yeah. Um. Like, did you play the remake of one on the week? Like you said earlier, like you were a very big uh, Nintendo fanboy at that time, and were very heavy for the Wii. Like, like was that was that something you wanted to play at that time, or I ha- have played now? I I haven't. Like, basically, around because, as I said, like I, I didn't. It didn't occur to me that there was <laughs> first one until um until a couple of years ago. By which point, I I was way over the the Wii. Um, which is why I played the the original PS1 one because I I had a PSP that was definitely not broken open and had loads of emulators on it, um, and I had like Klonoa one right and like because I, I bought the P- I bought the PS1 disc like and then realised that I didn't want to sit and plug in my PS2 and and go through it so I just emulated the damn thing. Um, realised how bad it looked in HD. Uh, 
and then just played it on PSP instead. But um, yeah, so I, I kind of missed the the Wii re-release entirely. It's it's something that I'd still like to go back to, but it's like I know I feel like I've gotten to the stage with the Wii now where it's like I just can't really be bothered to plug it in. You know, like just getting all the wires ready and stuff. It's just ugh. Like if it's not plugged into one of my HDMI ports already, I'm not having it. Like, do you not have a Wii U? I don't, not yet. It's on my list. Oh, no. Sh- and I'm not sure why this is, either, because I keep... So so my stance on the Wii U is, like, it looks pretty good. I just need... And I've been saying this for about two years. It's like, I just need one more game that makes me really want it, and then I'll get a Wii U. And I keep seeing really good games I would like to play, but not quite enough to justify the purchase. Oh, so I still have... There's so many games that justify it now. So many. I know. You keep telling me this. Like the Splatoon, I, Bayonetta 2, Mario Kart 8. Like, I just, so many. You're going to hate me for this. I didn't like Bayonetta 1. I didn't get on with it. Thanks for listening to this episode <laughs> of My Favourite Game. Next week. <laughs> and, and just literally as we're recording this. Bayonetta 2 is 15 quid on Amazon as we're recording this. So, like, buy Wii U and then buy Bayonetta 2 on Amazon. Like, uh, no. I need to get an Xbox One first. Uh... Yeah, that's this Christmas. Mm. I, I, I'm a big Halo fanboy. Right? Uh, I, I still... I know maybe at some point when I was a, a big Nintendo fanboy, I got really burnt out on Nintendo. But right now I really, like... I don't know. The, I really want to play my 3DS more than I do, but like I just can't find a place in my life where it fits in. Mm. Um, like I, I tend to hear that people, like the place that a 3DS occupies in people's lives, is the same place that like a book could occupy. But I don't read books, so <laughs> I just wouldn't play it. Um, or like I don't play the one that I have, and I'm I'm sort of worried that with the Wii U it'd be similar. Where like I I probably wouldn't play party games on it. If I play party games on the Wii U, it's usually at like loading in London or something. Hmm. Um, so like I, I know like I, I just don't. There's there's not a gap that it would fill in my life currently, um, which is a shame because like I I absolutely agree that a lot of the uh, library on the Wii U is extremely strong, mm-hmm. and it would allow me to play Clannoa Daughter and Smile. It would, it would. There's your game. There's the game. Go for it. Here's a game. I could just buy a Wii on eBay for like thirty quid and just sit it in at my desk and well, play it then. Well, you could, but then if you buy a Wii U, you can play Canoe One on it. Plus, you have Splatoon, Mario Kart Eight, and Bayonetta Two. You will play Bayonetta Two if it's the last thing you will ever do. All of those, all three of those games are games that I'm like, oh yeah, they sound kind of like they sound pretty interesting, but like none of them. None of them get my heart racing. Well, well, you may as well go for it. Two birds, one stone. <laughs> um, but we digress. Yeah. Um, like story-wise, like, like how 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 did you find that at the time? Like, plan it. So compared this is one. To, yeah, compared to now, even as well. So these are one. Of the, this is one of the reasons why Clannoa Two means so much to me. I mean, it it always meant quite a lot to me as a kid. Um. But it's one of the few games I've played where I've gone back and it's meant completely different things to me as a as an adult. Um, so, when I was a kid, I just appreciated that the story basically plays out a bit like a cartoon, where it's sort of episodic. The, the premise of the game is 
you are Klonoa, who is a dream traveller. He appears mysteriously uh, on the shore of a beach um, during a storm. It's found by these two characters, uh, Lola and Popka. Um, and he proceeds to go on an adventure with them, uh, ringing bells in all four kingdoms in this fictional game world. Um, Lola is a priestess. It's her job to basically ring these bells and get these like orb things um, to keep them safe. Unfortunately, uh, there's a character called Learina, who is a... I think that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, who is a sky pirate. She is also trying to ring the bells, but for nefarious means. Um, and, like, it's it's a pretty stupid, like, Team Rocket-style, like, nemesis, right? Where it's just like, we go to this city. Oh, no! The evil people are here! Let's stop them. And, like, it feels quite formulaic, right? Um, but it has a earnestness to it that I really enjoyed as a kid. Like, each each of the kingdoms you go to are themed. So, like, you've got the Kingdom of Joy, which is called, I think it's called, like, Joyland or something. Which is, like, a kingdom that is literally just a giant theme park. Um, and then you go to another one, which is called, like, Boar, I think. Which is, like, a city where, like, everyone's just fighting. It's just war. Um then you've got another one which is like the kingdom of mystery and like each of them are themed and it feels it feels formulaic but then the game starts doing things that sneak up on you and you realize that the characters actually have i wouldn't say depth but they have a sincerity to them that means that you really start believing their friendship um and i really appreciated that as a kid like i really started to like these characters um and I'm sort of starting to lead into like spoiler territory here, but it it's a it's a very old game. If you really care about the story of Klonoa Two, then you should have played it by now. Um, you're about fifteen years too late. Um, oh my god, I'm so old. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> nice to drop that on. Yeah. Um. So basically, once you the the idea is there are four of these kingdoms. You go to ring the bell on each one, but when what ends up happening is the evil person rings like all the bells before you and gets all of these orb things. And basically, that's the point where you're like, wait, so everything's ruined, like everything should be ruined. And what this basically does is open up a fifth kingdom. So all of these kingdoms, as I said, have been themed, so it's like joy, war, I think there's tranquility, and then there's um, mystery as well. Um, and then by this, like, sky pirate person doing this, she opens up a fifth kingdom, which is the kingdom of sorrow. And that's where the game gets really, really cool. Because, firstly, you have, like, an all is lost moment where you're like, well, how do we fix this? Because the world suddenly gets, like, way drearier. Like, the sea just runs dry and it reveals this hidden kingdom that was under the sea where it's just sad all the time and there's just one person there the king of sorrow and like it it starts getting really really bleak and pretty much immediately after Lyrina does this she realizes what she's done and she feels horrible about it so now you've got a situation where the three main characters you really like who you've super liked throughout the whole game 
aren't the only characters you like. You're now really, really sympathetic towards the villain who feels awful about what she's done and wants to stop it as well. And what this leads up to is you going to the Kingdom of Sorrow to confront the King of Sorrow, who's just a really sad creature. He looks a lot like you, like Klonoa, the player character, but he's just unbelievably sad. <laughs> and, of course, like you know, you explore the Kingdom of Sorrow, which has a really cool soundtrack, where it's like an amalgamation of all of the game's soundtrack before that, but like distorted and fading and out of beat, and like everything just feels a bit uncomfortable. Um, and of course, you know, you have the boss fight and stuff, you defeat the King of Sorrow, but the the sort of, like, revelation you have, I I, I don't even want to call it a twist, because the game doesn't really treat it like a twist, but you find, you discover that, like, right at the start of the game, there's this voice that keeps calling out to you, saying, help me, help me, and at the end of the game, you discover that it was the King of Sorrow all along, and the reason the King of Sorrow has been so sad is because the Fifth Kingdom, the King, the like Kingdom of Sorrow has been separated from joy, tranquility, mystery and conflict essentially. Like because this kingdom has been separated from all of these elements, it's just constantly sad because there's no humanity there, right? So like I didn't a lot of this didn't sink in when I was a kid. I was just like, "Oh, right. So even the like the king, the big big bad, like I'm super sympathetic towards now." And then there's like a sad ending where Klonoa has to say goodbye and I cried like a baby. Um, because I I really like these characters and I wanted them to stay together forever. Um, but the reason it meant so it means so much to me now, and the reason I feel like Clone Two has so much staying power with me is, obviously, as an eight-year-old kid, I was just like, this is a really nice story, and it ended in a sad but fulfilling way. And as an adult going back and playing it, it's like, oh my god, all of this time, this game has been basically telling a big metaphorical tale about depression. And, like, how separate... Like, the villain is literally spending the whole game crying out to you for help because he's lonely and has been separated from everything that kind of makes life meaningful. And, like, that hit me like a bus. Like, that was huge. Because I I hadn't even thought about it. Like, that was, you know, sort of like an eight-year time span where I I hadn't played the game. So going back and playing it, and then suddenly realizing that there was this incredibly meaningful subtext there um, in a game that is so outwardly silly and optimistic and upbeat. Um, oh, it really just hit me. It really, really meant a lot to me. And it came at a time just like. It came at a time just after I'd finished sort of secondary school. And I won't go into it too much, but like. I've had quite a few friends in the past who've been very depressed and stuff like that. Um, so playing again with... So instead of... So so, the, so the, I'd say the big difference between playing it as a kid and playing it now is like... I wouldn't have noticed that subtext as a kid because I wasn't aware that it was like depression and that stuff was a thing. Um, and also like I just... I had such an optimistic view of the world at that point that I just wouldn't have noticed anyway, right? But... um. Yeah, going back and playing it and realizing that this thing that was incredibly nostalgic to me and something that meant a lot to me anyway had this this extra layer of incredibly deep and, at least to me, powerful meaning to it um, massively elevated the game uh, to a point where it stopped just being like a novelty. It stopped being 
a a really nice nostalgic thing that reminded me of being a kid. It still is that to me, but now on top of that, it's an incredibly meaningful story about depression that I never even had known was there. Um, and and that I I feel like that's incredibly special. It's it's used on a line like that makes a game like I'm rambling when I say that, but and I, and I was saying this in one of the episodes I was recording the day before recording this one. I'm like. And the, this this doesn't have an emotional foreshadowing to or an emotional aspect to what I'm saying, but like I'll repeat this story. Anyways, I'm and considering this is going to be earlier in the season, you'll hear the story again. But when I played Metal Gear Solid Two, this isn't really a very emotional attachment to it, but I'll, I'll go for it. Anyways, Metal Gear Solid Two. Um, do you remember? The well, okay. So, do you remember coming up to the helipad first time while you're defusing the bombs? So, um, so it's so it's Big Cell riding, and you get the cutscene with Olga, and she's talking to someone. Um, there's references to Tengu soldiers. You don't really know who the old man is on on the other side of the radio. She does this kind of ninja moves disappearing, and uh, there's the same music she pl- that plays at. When you when you fight snake or when you fight her on the tanker snake, like years down the line, I didn't realize like um, that you know that was foreshadowing events. Like the tanker soldiers she was referring to was the soldiers guard arsenal gear. The other guy on the other end of the radio was all this, and the move she was doing and the music would have foreshadowed her as the ninja. Spoilers, by the way. Um, I realize I realize what I'm saying doesn't have any emotional attachment compared to what you've said and what you discovered about Klonoa. But my point is, it's even if the discovery is a minor one or a major one, as in your case with Klonoa too, it's 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 really I'm trying to find the right word, but for it, but for the lack of a better term, it's really fulfilling. That's the word. Um, it's really fulfilling to kind of find out these things about games later on in life, if you get what I mean. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where I I think about it a lot as a designer, and I'm like, I'm I still haven't quite figured out how you plan that stuff. Like, because I feel like the reason that Klonoa Two means so much to me is largely in part to the fact that I did experience it as a kid and then again as an adult, and I don't feel like the designers could have accounted for that when designing the game. Or if they did, they were targeting a very, very specific niche. Um, but, you know, I think Metal Gear Solid as a series is incredibly good for that stuff, where it's like... Um, I'm not sure how to describe it. I, I guess it, I, I'm i a big fan of games that feel like you can... If you put enough thought into it and you draw enough of those kind of lines together you can uncover a new level of depth and a new level of thought that was put into the creation of that thing um and it's i feel like one of the reasons that it tends to mean so much is because it feels like it's personal right like because it feels like you could have because it is so specific or it is so related to your past experience you're very aware that very few other people could have probably experienced this the same way. And that suddenly... It, it suddenly makes the game feel like it's aware of you. In a in a strange way. Or, or like... It cares about you specifically and how you specifically are experiencing this thing. 
Um, and again, obviously it kind of can't because I'm not sure how designers would account for that. But I love it when it happens. I love it when there's that kind of that foreshadowing. And again, like Melgus, one of the advantages of it being such a long-running series with so many, like, repeated elements and repeated themes and repeated iconography, is that by the time you get to something like Metal Gear Solid Five, you're playing through it and you're going like, oh, so that's like this, and like even or like even if you're just playing Metal Gear Solid Five and you start noticing like all the V's popping up everywhere, and suddenly you're like, oh, okay. That's just like a really cool aesthetic thing, because most people aren't even going to be looking for that those kind of repeated symbols. But it's like, if once you notice it's there, it suddenly adds more meaning to it, and it's like a, it's like a reward, I guess. And yeah, as you said, like it's fulfilling, like it's having a, a nice little reward for going like, okay, because you put the trust in us to have thought about the game in this much depth when we were making it. Here is something back. Here is something that only you could have found through thinking hard about this thing that we made. Um, and I love that stuff. Mm. Uh, and like I said, it's just absolutely incredible to find those things in games. And like like years down the line, it's just it's just great. It's just wonderful, really. Uh, no no matter how much the uh, the 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 punch of that moment does, whether it be minor, whether it be significant, like, it's it's, it's great. It's really great. It's re- more or less one of the reasons why I, I, I love games. Like, just find, finding those mm. things, like, down the line. It's it's just great. Really great. Um, But, yeah, but we digress. Um, Like, touch upon some of the characters that that you were really fond of in that game because like obviously it was Klenor but like and, and you mentioned some of them in brief like but like what was the kind of attachment you had to the set of characters that were in the game so it's strange because the characters are very kind of archetypical um you know they they're a little bit tropey and they aren't given enough time to be like fully fleshed out three dimensional characters but um the game's so earnest. Like the so the the main trio is Klonoa, um, who's like the dream traveler. He's he's not a mute protagonist. He's but he he doesn't talk a lot. Um, you've got uh, Lola, who's sort of like your main like partner in crime throughout the game. She she goes on your adventure with you. She's the main speaking person. She's the person who explains any exposition in the world. Um, she is sort of one of the key anchors that the whole plot revolves around in terms of her role as a priestess and what this what that means to the actions that you have to complete throughout the world. Um, and then you've got Popka who's like kind of the comic relief character. He's this weird rabbit thing with like jewels for eyes. Um, he's very sarcastic and, and just strange. Um, but it's one of those things where like it felt as if whoever was writing the game was starting with these archetypes because they didn't want to write anything that complicated or that deep. And then it almost feels like whoever was writing it uh, found that the story snuck up on them as they were writing it and then they got really into it. Um, And I love that. Like, I I love that it feels like someone genuinely got to a point about two-thirds of the way through the game. Like, there's this cutscene where um, Lola's basically like, I don't think I can do this like i don't like i don't think i'm strong enough to complete the tasks that we have ahead of us um and this happens like during a boss fight um 
And Popka's like, well, look at Clonoa. Like, he doesn't really understand what's happening, and he's still trying really hard. And, like, it's done in a way that is so earnest, and I feel like the soundtrack helps us a lot, that these things that feel like they're just kind of generic, like, adventure game nonsense, um, really hits a lot harder and really feels meaningful. It means that once you get to this this revelation where, like, the Fifth Kingdom is unlocked, and you realize that, like, the game's not going to wrap up how you thought it was going to wrap up. It's going to go somewhere really, really weird with it. You, that's suddenly where everything ties together, and it goes from being a kind of generic but pretty charming game into something where you don't know where it's going to go, but you care about everyone who's involved. Um, and that's huge. Like, the, just the fact that, you know, Leorina, the Sky Pilot, starts off as this, like, generic nefarious like ha villain and then she turns into someone genuinely sympathetic who like ends up breaking down crying by the end like it's it's interesting I'd almost compare it to uh, have you ever seen the the amazing TV show Avatar The Last Airbender uh, no I have not but I, I will obviously know of it but I've not seen it no okay you you absolutely should see it because um, that's also it, it sort of reminds me of that and I obviously I won't spoil after the last Airbender, because that is a show that should never be spoiled. But um, it sort of has a similar thing where it starts off in kind of a generic, like, oh, okay, I understand this place where it's, it's very well done, but it's still something that you've sort of seen before. Um, and then as it goes on, turns into something incredibly sincere and much more nuanced and much more complicated. Um, and it's it's just one of those stories that kind of sneaks up on you and ends up being really, really great and really, really meaningful. Um, and they, I'm not even sure the characters are so much a part of that so much as just the consistent presentation and tone and the fact that the plot does kind of go in this weird direction towards the end. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I do, I, I feel kind of weird sort of saying like, well, like the characters are, are meaningful because it's not like you can say oh, well, this character's so complicated and interesting because they're not. Like, they're, they're not complicated. They're not that interesting. But they're incredibly sincerely written. Um, and in a way that's kind of charming in its naivety. Like, the fact that it does, like, it's not like it just goes like, oh, well, we need to have a bit where a character, you know, talks about the merits of never giving up. Um, it feels like whoever was writing it I guess somewhat immaturely was coming to this revelation on their own that you should never give up <laughs> and like they just put that on the like in the game um, and I love that like everything about it feels like it's like one thing leads to another perfectly and even though it's it's basic and kiddie and like kind of Saturday morning TV show-esque like the game means it um and I, I don't think that's any small thing. When you say that, uh, that never give up ma- mantra, it basically seems like whoever wrote it just basically l- let off the mantra. Of- John C. What else did you like about Contra? That we, uh, uh, Contra? I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, what else did, did you like about Contra? <laughs> very Clonoa? different games. <laughs> yes, very different games. Because we're talking about a Namco game, not a Konami <laughs> game. I don't know why I got a Contra from. I just had a brain fart. What else did oh, you like God. about Contra? Whatever becomes the slot machine. <laughs> a pachinko machine. Um, it's going to happen. Um, so, I guess 
So, like, I, I replayed it before coming on to record this. Uh, I've been sort of playing it throughout the afternoon just to refresh myself on, on why I like the game um, and make sure that I wasn't just remembering it more fondly than it deserved. Luckily, I'm not. It's a, it's a bloody good game. But um, I guess one of the things that I really like about it that I'm not entirely proud of but also sort of don't mind is that there's... There was definitely a shift between Klonoa 1 and Klonoa 2. Where Klonoa 1, you're playing as, like, Klonoa, he's this weird cat thing. He's a small little dinky cat thing. And he's got a hat. And then Klonoa 2, it's almost like they kind of wanted to make it, like, Klonoa 1 with attitude. But then they didn't follow through on it. So it's still this really cutesy game. But, like, now Klonoa wears his hat backwards. And he, like, surfboards. (laughs) And, like... It's it's really weird because it doesn't come across as them being it doesn't come across as like Poochie and the Simpsons or something like it just comes across as them being like yeah okay like e- every other platformer hero is getting weirdly darker for their sequel so like let's do it <laughs> well they more or less did this with the the Wii version a few years ago and that they were trying to like redo Clonoa's design it was basically a Poochie design so to speak yeah and it it doesn't it doesn't really work in Clonoa one in Clonoa two it just about works. Um, mainly because it feels like... I guess it sort of resonates with me, because when, when I was a kid, I really didn't want to grow up. And I... Like, most kids are like, oh, I can't wait till I'm a teenager. And the teenagers are like, oh, I can't wait till I'm an adult. I was always wanting to be a kid. I still want to be a kid. I hate the fact that I'm, like, six foot whatever. Um, and basically, like, the way Klonoa handles that whole, like, attitude thing sort of feels like that. Not Klonoa the character, just, like, Klonoa to the game. Where, like... They give him, they give him a snowboard. They give him a surfboard. They pull his hat backwards, but he's still acting exactly the same. And I really like that because, like, as a ten-year-old, I still thought surfboards were really cool. So, I, I was, I could still play this and, and still like, was this really upbeat, just like, wee, let's go around and have an adventure, kind of, kind of thing. And then also have these really cool like surfboarding segments, which actually control really well, considering it's a like standard platformer um it has these sort of like like surfboarding bits that basically work this pretty much exactly the same way except occasionally it will flip the camera will flip behind Klonoa like when you're um like a 3d sonic game you know when you're running and the camera's behind him and you're just blasting through stuff um but then it will also switch back into a side-on perspective so it's one of those things where it's like clearly at some point someone was like well we need to put like surfboarding or like extreme sports in the game even though it won't really work um and they do it and then just do it in the most like endearing charming childlike Klonoa way possible where he's just like so happy that he's on a surfboard and like he can like jump and do spins and that's something as well that I love about Klonoa Klonoa has a dedicated pose button actually no that's not true it has two so if you press L1 or L2 He'll do a pose and say something in Japanese. Um, but this works, like, in different contexts. Like, if you're standing, occasionally he'll pull, like, the pose that's on the front of the box if you press it. Um, or he'll, like, throw his ring in the air and then catch it. Um, but if you're doing one of the, like, surfboarding slash snowboarding bits, like, if you're jumping in the air, he'll do, like, a spin. And then it's, like, Tony Hawk's because you're doing all these tricks. Um, like, there's no points for it. It's, like, completely, like, it doesn't matter to the game at all. But you can do it, and it feels cool. Um, it's purely just to show off. And likewise, if you're, like, 
being shot through the air in a cannon. You've got different, like, pull-a-pose buttons for that. And, like, they don't benefit the game at all, and they don't do anything. But, like, it's just so nice that they're there. And I love that about it. Like, it's just, like, let's put this in there, because it's cool. (laughs) I love that, just that it has this really, like, naive, like, kid looking at his older brother, like, perception of what cool is. Um, And I adore that. I, I absolutely adore that. This is going to be a bit of a tricky question to answer, but, like, what didn't you like? Okay, so I was I was thinking about this as well when I was playing it. Um, the main thing, like, because I was thinking it from the perspective of what would I change? Um, you know, like, if I was if I was to go in and, like, redesign this, what would I change? Um, the collision's a bit weird. Uh, it definitely feels like they cut corners, and sometimes... Some of your attacks should hit and they don't hit, and sometimes you fall off a ledge when you shouldn't, and just like loads of little things like that. We like, yeah, the controls could be a, a little bit tighter. It, like the the jumping and stuff feels great, but um, there's definitely bits here and there where it's like, eh, this doesn't quite work. Um, the other thing is it, especially sort of towards the mid game, um, some of the pacing is a little bit wonky. Um, there's, like, one or two levels where it's like, okay, you should have trimmed, like, two or three rooms out of this. But it's all, like, nitpicky stuff. I mean, it's... The game's so weird, like, just in terms of the way it plays and the way it looks and the tone of it, that it's not like you can look at it and go, like, oh, well, this character should be more fleshed out, because you're like, well, in the context of the game that this is, it works. Like, everything in it feels like it's there to serve whatever weird conclusion this game's design was supposed to come to. So it's sort of difficult to to look at it in quotations like objectively and look at like what would be nice to add in and what would be nice to take out because it's like everything here feels like it's there to create what the game is. And it feels like the game's exactly what it was what it wanted to be. Um I would say, like, yeah, the only stumbling blocks there are pacing's a bit off, and the collision on the platforming isn't always great. But, like, that's it. Um, which is, like... Yeah, like, it's... Like, I, I don't know, maybe I, I'm, I'm sort of looking at it through rose-tinted glasses a bit, because, like, I, I do just adore the game, and, like, I... Like, genuinely wouldn't want to change it for the world, I don't think. Um, but yeah, there aren't that many problems with it. Um, also, by the way, just one thing that I remembered that I feel like should get a mention. Um, the game has, like, a music player mode, and this game has the best soundtrack ever. Um, like, legitimately one of my favourite game soundtracks of all time. And if you basically 100% the game, you unlock a music box that plays every single song from the entire game. Um, and I just forgot about that until just now and it's like one of my favorite things because i remember that being like being like 10 and thinking and like pausing and just like sitting on the menu screen and just because i loved the way that it sounded and then having that be like my final unlock was like the most incredible wonderful thing ever because then i just sat there all day and just had it on in the background just playing music from the game like if nothing else seek out the soundtrack on youtube or something because it really is an astonishingly good soundtrack there's only been two mainland games, so I don't need to ask you for a top three, but unless you want to put in one of the GBA games. 
See, I feel like that would probably be... Seeing as I can't remember the name of the Game Boy Advance games, because there was two, I don't want to say which one... I, I, I don't want to be like, which one is my third? Because obviously it's like Clannow 2, then Daughter Phantom R, and then one of the Game Boy Advance ones. Um, but both of the Game Boy Advance ones that I played were incredibly good. So I would just say, like, they, they, they weren't anywhere... Like, they weren't up to Clannow 2 standards, they... They weren't as story focused, or at least the presentation of the story was very, very different. And I think the game kind of suffers for that because Clonoa Two is basically just a very, very strong platformer with incredible presentation and incredible and incredibly large amounts of charm. And some of that gets sacrificed in the Game Boy Advance version and just turns it into a very good puzzle platformer. Um. So yeah, I mean, in terms of ranking, it's Clonoa Two, Clonoa, Daughter Phantom Island, PS One, and then just. If you find a Game Boy Advance one, play it because it's it's still a great game. Compared to the platformers that have been released since Clonoa Two's released, like like obviously there's been platformers that have come out since Clonoa Two in the decade came out. But I want to talk about more of the platformers of today, like because there's a lot a lot has ha- happened in in the platform genre since Clonoa Two came out. There's been Super Mario Galaxy, Rayman, Legends and Origins, and like. Can can a game like Clonoa 2 still hold up today compared to, you know, beasts like Super Mario Galaxy and the most recent Rayman games? Especially with Mario Galaxy being one of the best games of all time, arguably. Um, I think so. Um, so, the reason that I feel like Clonoa 2 still holds up, and I would say this for, for any game that still holds up today, um, Clonoa 2 is, like perfectly like well or pretty much perfectly achieves the goals that it sets out to achieve um in a it's sort of everything that it's doing design wise serves its own internal goals and that means that even if the industry changes even if we get new industry trends or whatever it doesn't matter because Klonoa is trying to do something that works as a, like a standalone i guess um it's it's internally consistent um and that makes it difficult for outside industry trends to really sort of hurt that i mean a, a lot of this as well is just because it's a platformer platformers had existed for 20 years before clonoa 2 came out um so as a result like it's like it wasn't the way that platformers controlled and the way that they were paced and a lot of the mechanics um had kind of plateaued like I'd say actually I should have probably mentioned this with the Clonoa 2 floors but like it still has like a live system that's the only like dated relic that I feel like doesn't serve the game um but everything else serves isn't out to serve making a good platformer it's out to serve Clonoa 2 so it still holds up incredibly well more so than I think maybe like as incredible as Mario Galaxy is like maybe more than Mario Galaxy will do in 10 to 20 years time because Mario Galaxy or Mario Galaxy's goal is like its goal is to create something that is simultaneously its own thing and a successor to Mario 64 and there's going to be something that comes after Super Mario Galaxy or Galaxy 2 or 
3D world, whatever, that is Galaxy is then going to be compared to, right? So, it's playing by different rules. Um, it's It's trying to shoot for different goals, and I feel like because it's shooting for goals that are set by conditions that exist outside of the game uh, in in Mario Galaxy's case it is just like other games in the Mario series um, yeah I, I feel like that means that it can be dated a bit easier whereas with Klonoa it very much feels like it is it knows exactly what it's trying to do it knows exactly how to do it and it doesn't feel like any lessons that have been learned since could change or improve that um Apart from the live thing, because it's redundant. So, yeah, like, I I don't want to make it sound like I think Klonoa 2 is a perfect game, because I don't think any game is a perfect game. But I think Klonoa is exceptionally good at setting out... Uh, it's incredibly good at accomplishing what it wants to do. Um, and, yeah, what what it's trying to do isn't dated. So I think it still holds up very, very well. And I, I don't think sort of outside like other platforms have really changed that. Um, even from like the indie movement, I, I don't think there have been any platforms that have made me reassess Kano 2 and go like, you know what, this doesn't actually like work that well. Like it's still incredibly internally consistent. mentions go for it okay so oh this is difficult actually um so i would say gone home um see i've kind of a strange like sort of because i i wouldn't even say that i have and i'm where this is kind of goes against the whole premise of this show but like <laughs> i wouldn't say that i have like a favorite game i have i i would say i'm quite lucky in that generally i don't have a favorite anything like i don't have a favorite friend like i don't have a best friend i have lots of people who i'm incredibly close with and i count myself quite lucky for that um and in the same way with the media i consume where it's like i'd have a lot of games that i really really love and klonoa 2 is right right up there um but yeah gone home is definitely it's definitely very very high up there um just in terms of the the revelation it gave me and the kind of in regards to the kind of stories that games could tell, really, really meant a lot to me. I mean, I'd, I'd obviously been aware for quite a while, like, oh yeah, games can tell, like, passive stories, obviously. But I hadn't ever encountered something that felt that human and real and genuinely nostalgic. Um, despite being a completely brand new game released in 2013. Um, it, it really just felt like okay, this has made me completely reassess how I think about games. Um, and what actually ties into that quite nicely is um, one of my other favourite games is The Last of Us. Um, the Last of Us I played before Gone Home, and the reason, the thing, even though I absolutely adored The Last of Us from start to finish, I think it's an incredible game. I think it's a the culmination of everything that sort of you know, AAA games have been trying to accomplish for all this time, and I think it, it completely knocks it out of the park. The thing that makes me adore The Last of Us is the opening 10-15 minutes, um, and 
I distinctly remember playing the, the those opening minutes of The Last of Us and thinking, this is what games need to be. Like, not obviously not every game, because games are more diverse than that, but it's like, this is the path that games should be pursuing. Or there should be more people in games pursuing this kind of thing. Um, which is why, then, when a few months later I played Gone Home and realised that it was basically, like, the opening ten minutes of The Last of Us, the video game. Um, <laughs> like... I just fell in love with it. Um, so I love both those games for that. Just like something about the fact that how both of those games accomplish the feeling of being in a house. It sounds like a really simple thing and a really strange thing to get really, really excited by, but suddenly it's like, oh my goodness! Like you can make games that feel real, um, not just in terms of like graphical fidelity, but just in terms of like just the ambience of a place. This feels like a house, um, and and both of those things really really excite me. Which is strange considering that they're both far and away very very different from Clonoa Two. Um, and I'd say like sort of my other two honourable mentions. Uh, one of them is uh, Zelda Twilight Princess, just because the first Zelda I played. Uh, it was the game that really made me. That that was the game where it drove me from sort of like toying with game designs in like notebooks and stuff to being like this needs to be my job. I want to make one of these. Um, not like a Zelda specifically, but a game that makes someone else feel the way that game made me feel. Um, just that that sense of scope and adventure and just craftsmanship is just as- astonishing. Um, and I, I I love it for it. I mean. I, if I'm honest, I felt a little bit burned after playing Twilight Princess, going back and playing some of the other Zeldas and being like, oh, okay, it wasn't this, like, massive, brand new, incredible thing, and it's actually been something that's been very slowly, steadily iterated on for 20 years. Um, but I imagine that, I, you know, the feeling I got from Twilight Princess is the feeling that I suppose people got when they played Ocarina of Time for the first time. Um, so, I, I rate that game incredibly highly, even though I know a lot of people aren't that keen on Twilight Princess. Um, and then, also, like, and this is less because I really like it that much as a game. I, I do really, really like it as a game. But the reason this is this next one's so high up on my list is just because of how much it it influenced me as a designer, uh, is Flower. That was the first game that taught me, like, oh my god, you can make a game that doesn't have combat in it and have it be the best thing. Like, you can make a game that feels like lying in a field, and that can still be engaging. And as a designer, it never occurred to me. And that that changes everything. That changes the whole way you look at video games. Um, and, you know, like, I, I wouldn't expect Flower to be that for everyone. Uh, I, I know that a lot of people, for them, Journey was that. Um, or... or maybe some other earlier kind of abstract indie game about like passive gameplay but for me that was Flower and I think Flower did it incredibly well um, and just I didn't even have to think about it critically for it to change my perception of design completely and it's very rare that a game is so unbelievably innovative and fresh to me that that happens so uh, I, I hold Flower in very very high regard um, actually, uh, the designer on it, Genova Chen, um, played 
a game I worked on, Castles in the Sky, he played that once, um, and he, he gave us a quote, and that's, like, still one of the highlights of my career. It's just because, like, that guy forever changed the way that I perceive games. I think those are sort of my... Th- those are my top, really. Um, I hold Metal, the Metal Gear Solid series in very high regard, but I'm not sure if there's one Metal Gear Solid game that I'm like, this is the best one. Because I, I like the Free. Free. <laughs> I like 3 a lot, okay? I really do. I like it more for story and consistency and systems, but it didn't change the way I think about design. 2 was my first Metal Gear Solid, so that holds a special place in my heart. But I feel like 1 has the most moments where I was like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. My controller's vibrating on the floor, and it's incredible. You know, like, just just those things that make you, that directly addresses, like, I, I think Metal Gear Solid 1 was sort of one of the few, was probably the first game I played that directly acknowledged that it was a game, and was just cool with it. Um, and, like, just from doing that, and just being that kind of blasé about breaking the fourth wall, um, it therefore um, just couldn't help teaching me lots and lots about design. Um, just the fact that it was openly addressing it was enough to make it suddenly an incredibly valuable design lesson. Especially the Psycho Mantis boss fight, because, like, my god, that boss fight. <laughs> top three ever, what would they be? Obviously, Klonoa at the top. So, yeah, I'd say Klonoa at the top, probably then followed by Gone Home, then followed by... Mm, I'm torn between Flower and The Last of Us. I go with The Last of Us because it's expensive. And it's the most expensive game on that list. And there should be a big budget one in there. Just to give me hope about the games industry. Taipan is the deadliest snake in the world. Its venom can kill a man in less than 45 minutes. Ninjas take less than 10 seconds. Let's let's touch upon before we end this, like with your your stuff, like starting with like because there's been a few. So like after that BAFTA success, there was 10 second ninja and like. It's done well for itself, like easily done well for itself. Like, as as that became successful, like, how how did you find that ki- that kind of success? Um, so it was weird, right? Because Ten Second Ninja kind of, I sort of feel like it it took care of itself in a lot of ways. Um, like I I don't want to make it sound like I I didn't work very very hard because I did. Um to the point where like I've already burnt out around the game's launch and I I basically from I think it was like mid April 2014 to June or July I basically just didn't do anything. Um I I just sat at home and played games. I just couldn't deal with like the 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 stress of it all. Um but thankfully despite that um the game kind of just got its own following. Uh it stayed pe- people talked about it 
on their own a lot longer than I thought it was. A lot longer than I thought they would. Um, but as a result, it sort of feels like the most people were talking about it, and thankfully, I know they were talking about it quite positively, the most people were talking about it was in those like first three months. And for those three months, like... I just didn't want to hear about it. Like, I, I was just exhausted from working on it. Um, so I kind of feel like I missed out on that a bit, and I'm, I'm very wary going forward with projects, like, to make sure that I give myself a break before the, like, the next game launches, just because I don't want to get burnt out on that again. Burnt out like that again. Because I, I missed a bunch of stuff that I would have really liked to be present for, because, you know, things went quite well. But I found it... I've been really happy with the reaction to the game. Um, It was sort of... It was sort of a strange experience for me because Tensaken Ninja isn't... Even though it's a puzzle puzzle platformer and, like, so is Klonoa 2 and I'm aware I've just gone on and on about how great Klonoa 2 is. um, Tensaken Ninja isn't the sort of game I would typically play a lot of. Like, I'm not good at games. (laughs) I'm, I'm not... Uh, yeah, but it's as simple as that. Like, if a game's difficult, I really, really struggle with it. Um, and a lot of Ten Second Ninja when I started making it was sort of a design experiment to be like, okay, can I make something from a more objective, obviously, like in quotations, design perspective, and make a game that is more for an audience that I'm not a part of, and how would that go, and like how would they like it, how would I playtest that. Um, and Ten Seconds just sort of became that, and as a result, I then became way more interested in that type of game just because I'd been thinking about Ten Second Ninja a lot. But it did also mean that when the game came out, a lot of the reaction was quite surprising because, like, the type of reaction that Let's Players had to it was different from what I was expecting, or or, or speedrunners specifically. Um, I was expecting people to do like big playthroughs of the whole game and like try and figure out the best routes across this whole thing because that's what speedrunners do, right? They go across the whole game and they do this this thing. Um, but speedrunners became instead really, really obsessed with individual levels and would frequently play those over and over again. So that was a really interesting experience for me. Um, the the whole thing was really just eye-opening and very educational. So definitely the... I mean, I've launched like two games, but like this is definitely, I'd say, the biggest launch that I'd ever done. Um, and... There was a lot to take in, but um, I'm incredibly happy with how people respond to the game. I'm very proud of how the game turned out. Um, it's something that I would like to revisit. Um, like this, I would like to do more with it. Uh, we actually we can't talk about specifics, but like uh, we recently announced ourselves as a proper company instead of it just being me uh, with Four Circle Interactive, and we we are looking at sort of like trying to do different things with 10 Second Ninja um, but we're not going to have news on that for a while but it was like it was an incredibly fulfilling experience it's easily the hardest thing I've ever done um, but yeah the, the audience was great the the reaction was to it was great um, it's it's done well enough to keep us going like up until now which I I wasn't expecting a game like it to have that kind of tail on it um yeah, it's it's been good. It's been really good. I I sort of feel it's it's difficult to summarize because it's sort of like 
it w- it is just sort of has it has just been my life for like the last a year and a half really. Then then they go from ten second ninja to then do like castles f- uh, in the sky with or like with Jack like that that was. <laughs> I don't quite know how to put this, like in terms of, of a question, but it was certainly, um, it was certainly a change of tone, a shift of tone. Anyways, from you know, ten second into something like Castles in the Sky, because like, you know, Castles in the Sky was you know, more more of a storybook. Yeah, um, and that was a very sort of deliberate thing, right? Like, so Castles in the Sky, we actually developed midway through Ten Second Ninja's production. Uh, I had been doing Ten Second Ninja for like. I think a year and a half um, and I was getting really really fatigued and I was like I need to do something completely different from this um, just because like you know no matter how much you love something you stare at it for like 16 hours every single day like eventually you're just going to need to look at something else you're going to need to get in a different headspace um, and Castle sort of was that for me I was pretty much Kind of like how I said earlier, like I, I've always wanted to be a kid and stay a kid. Uh, that's why I, I rate the first Kingdom Hearts higher than any of the sequels, just because like that is a game about being a kid, and very few things get the feeling of being a kid right. And I used to get really, really frustrated because I'd, I'd say to like my school friends and stuff, like, you know what, like I really miss being a kid, and they'd be like, yeah, you didn't have to do anything. And I was like, that isn't, that isn't why being a kid was interesting to me. That wasn't why it was special. Um, what was special to me about being a kid was everything being bigger than you and you not knowing how the world worked. So everything was awe-inspiring and amazing and surprising. Um, and I feel like as an adult, you're never going to get that frequency of day-to-day like revelation again. <laughs> like just when you're a kid, because everything's new. Um, and I wanted to make a game about that kind of that newness and that excitement and and everything being big and you not knowing what to expect from it. Um, and I realised that, you know, games as a medium is a perfect way to explore that, because you can create a world, you can create a place that the player doesn't understand and, and doesn't know what they need to expect from it. Um, and Castles ended up becoming a game about that, where we're like, okay, how can we set up these kind of very serene I guess almost set piece moments, but set piece makes it sound like Uncharted or something. Um, where like you have these moments of surprise and revelation, where you're like, "Oh, the game's doing that now," um, and it's not like none of those revelations are scary. They're just tranquil. They're peaceful. They're they're nice. Uh, hopefully, a little bit awe inspiring. Um, and Castles was just like a game about that. It was a game so instead of having to talk to my friends and be like, here is why I liked being a kid and then not getting it, I could just show them Castles in the Sky and go like, this, this was my childhood. This is how it felt. Um, and and thankfully, like, people got that. Um, like, I forget what who wrote it, but there was a blog post from someone, like a complete stranger, Um who wrote about Castles in the Sky and said, like, what it meant to them. And it was like they had written down everything I'd been feeling for the prior ten years. Um, like, ever, or, or at least ever since I'd left primary school, right? Um, and that's, like, that wrecked me. Like, I, 
it was it, a hugely emotional experience. Um, just working on something that sincere. And, like, I'm not sure that kind of game is really sustainable for me. It's definitely, like, another... Uh, I want to go back and try and make a game like that again. Uh, I'm glad we got the success that we got from it. Um, I, I wasn't expecting getting a BAFTA nomination for it, for sure. Um... But it's not something that, like, it's not something that I could do yearly, you know? Um, I don't think I could make, like, another Castles just because, like, I want a project to do. Um, it came from a place that was very honest, and the subject of Castles and just, like, that feeling of childhood had been something that had been on my mind pretty much every single day since I'd left primary school. Like, I can't do that on a whim. Um... So yeah, it was it was a t- it was a game that I felt like I needed, um, and just like as a developer, I like making things that I need uh, for whatever reason. Like Ten Second Ninja, I I needed to make that just because it was like I I need to know that I can make a game that is like a gamey game that people respond to in the way that I want. Like I need to know that I can do that because if I don't know that, then I'm going to be constantly worrying about it for like the rest of my life. Um, and Castles in the Sky was, was sort of a similar need, but it was more like I need to express this because I'm never going to have an opportunity to express this quite as well. Um, so yeah, like it it was weird to me because it didn't f- when I was making it, it almost didn't feel like a tonal shift because like Castles in the Sky and Tens I can ninja are just like different facets of me, right? Like they're just different parts of my personality coming through in, in different ways that are like hopefully tonally consistent in their own individual rights. So to me it just feels like different aspects of my personality, but I I I can completely understand why it would seem like a big tonal shift to someone who isn't me. Because they just seem like two completely independent products projects that don't really overlap at all. interested in even one word that I've said here and your chances are you'll be interested in at least one of them you should uh, follow me on Twitter because that's where like that that's the the mother base where all of my information comes from um, Christ you have been playing a lot of MGS5 game... 
I have you have no idea. Sixty hours. Um so yeah, basically follow me at Game Design Dan or one word. Uh and also if you're interested in what I'm doing uh with sort of ten second ninja stuff going forward and, and some other projects as well that sort of aren't ready to announce yet but will be in the near future. Um follow at four circle int. Um that's the the, the studio that's now sort of we're handling ten second ninja stuff rather it rather than it just being me. Um, and also, if you're interested in more Castles in the Sky style stuff, follow at the Troll Trees. Uh, that's an underscore between each word. Uh, and you you should be able to like keep up to date with, with everything that I'm doing development-wise. Thanks for listening to my favourite game. Next week, Harriet Jones on Fallout 3. Until next week, bye bye.